Hi, you're about to listen to episode six of the podcast. We're particularly excited about it for two reasons. One, it's our first follow-up episode. And two, it's our first interview episode. Humans are animals, animals with rights. So what kind of rights do non-human animals deserve? The right to liberty? The right to nurse their young? Maybe the right to socialize with peers in their species? In this episode, we interview two animal rights experts and ask them about chimps, cats, and personhood. We discuss the common law, Jurassic Park, ancient Rome, woolly mammoths, and the Animal Welfare Act of 1966. This is Robot F. Kennedy. Um, so today we're going to interview Professor Sarah Schindler. She's currently a, a fellow at the Program in Law and Public Affairs at Princeton University, and she's an expert in the areas of land use law and urban policy. She teaches at the University of Maine School of Law. We were wondering if you could talk us through how the legal system thinks about personhood. Sure. So, you know, so it's hard to just say federal law. It's hard to talk about federal law as sort of a, a block because a lot of this does come down to state court decisions that sort of get filtered up. Um, but, you know, so if you look at at Black's Law Dictionary, which is sort of the the legal dictionary that all first year law students are supposed to have, you know, sitting next to them in class. If you look up personhood there, um, it talks about a person or a human being or an entity such as a corporation that is recognized by law as having the rights and duties of a human being. And so, um, of course, though, if we think back through time, the concept of, of personhood and legal personhood and who is a legal person has changed. So oftentimes when I'm teaching animal law, we do start with sort of a historical view of who is now considered a person and if we look back in history, who is now considered a person that wasn't previously? So, you know, you can often think about uh, enslaved persons. Historically, they were not considered legal persons. They were considered property. Similarly, married women um, were for a long time considered property of someone else. Uh, children, uh, in many um, instances, have not been considered full legal persons. So that sort of evolving concept. And, you know, you mentioned uh, corporations and ships. Um, in, in the ocean are also sometimes considered legal persons nowadays. So there's definitely been a change in in the view um, of courts as to who who is considered a person uh, under the law. I want to maybe focus a little bit on children for a second, um, because in our research, something that you said has come up again and again, it's that under the law, the concept of rights often are the flip side of the coin from duties or responsibilities. So having uh, the, the right to vote goes hand in hand with, with your not committing felonies and that vote can be, and that right can be rescinded based on certain criteria. Is that true? No, I mean, that is correct. Um, and so I, I, and I think that's part of the pushback that folks in the animal rights community, especially those who are seeking personhood for animals would say, um, this idea of the importance of duties isn't actually always so valid. Children is a, a great example. You can also think of, you know, severely mentally disabled adults, for example, others who we would certainly think of as persons under the law with rights who might not owe the same duties or, or be able to perform um, in the same way as as others. So is there any, specifically sticking with people for now, is there any cohesive or coherent, rather, I, I should say, framework here where the law is based on um, some sort of standard of aptitude or intelligence quotient or some other empirical rubric, or is it kind of a patchwork quilt of policy um, from jurisdiction to jurisdiction? I mean, I would say the foundation at this point in our history is the human being, right? The the human animal, uh, and that's sort of what it centers around. So, as I said, you know, the the Black's Law Dictionary talks not just about human beings as being persons, but entities that have the rights and duties of human beings. So again, it's it's that attachment to the human being that is sort of the, I guess you could say, the the framework around which personhood has has evolved. So, speaking um, kind of apart from per from the idea of personhood. Animals, you know, d don't have constitutional rights, but they do, but they are protected under various laws. Some animals are protected more than others. Is that 
just by virtue of them being endangered species, or does it have to do with their genetic proximity to human beings? Yeah, so right. So there are special protections for endangered species. So we can sort of put that aside because those are generally, you know, wildlife. Otherwise, there are really very few, especially federal protections for animals under the law. I guess the first point of um, interest would be that there are different rules and laws that apply to wild animals and domesticated animals. And so the law generally treats domesticated animals as property, right? As personal property of the the guardian or the person who owns that animal. Um, Whereas wild animals are generally only considered property once they've been reduced to possession or control, right? Once a person has control of that animal. Mm -hmm. So there are also different laws that apply to domestic animals that are kept as pets and and animals that are used for for agriculture. Uh, So let's say someone um, cuts off the tail of a cat, right? That could be an act of animal cruelty. That could be subject to criminal penalties, depending on the the laws of that state. Whereas if you cut off the tail of a cow, that's often going to be viewed just as a standard agricultural practice and completely acceptable with no criminal penalties. Is there any federal law regulating the treatment of either pets or agricultural animals, or are those all state laws? Really, the only federal protections, there's the Animal Welfare Act, which is quite limited. And then there's another, there's one other federal law that talks about, um, oh gosh, it's been a while. I think it's how often, if you're transporting an animal, how often you have to stop and give it water or or something like that. Um, But it's very limited. Federal protections for animals, that's pretty much it. Um, So we're mostly talking about state-level protections here. But then there's also the common law side, which is the way that courts deal with this. And so, as I said, in most states, or most most common law, the common law of most states, so if you look at the way that courts have treated animals um, throughout history, as I mentioned, it's this idea of the animal as property. But in recent years, there have been some courts that have started to, to loosen on that a bit when it comes to a person's pet. And again, we could say a lot of this is probably because of the way that the pet has evolved in the life of many Americans. You know, people are having fewer kids, they're having more pets, they're spending more money on their pets. And so we're starting to see some courts recognizing pets as, instead of pure property, as something like quasi-property, or as fitting somewhere between a person and a property, so that the guardians of a pet uh, might be permitted to get what's called special damages, or, or some sort of additional damages if their pet is harmed in some way. So if someone, for example, destroys like your dining room table, you might be able to recover the value of that table, right? How much is that table worth? But if someone kills your pet, maybe you adopted that pet and paid a $200 adoption fee, but the pet you feel has much more value than $200 to you. So again, some courts are starting to look beyond that traditional property framework and saying, okay, we will allow you to collect a little bit more than just the $200. I so I live in Hollywood and in the city of West Hollywood I know that it's I, I guess a city law that you don't own pets that you're just their guardian. Right. Kind of based on the demographic demographics of the city the city of West Hollywood has more pets than children. And a lot of that, you know, it's it's semantic choice which is intentional. It's it's definitely a choice that once we start making those semantic decisions we start viewing animals differently, right? And calling them non-human animals um, versus farmed animals as opposed to just animals or farm animals. Um, so all of those semantic choices can, can I think, shift our, our, our way of thinking. Something that drives me crazy, just on a personal note, Eddie teases me sometimes because I like to categorize things so, so fervently. What drives me crazy about the rubric of pets, like being a pet is the criteria for granting certain limited rights to a species of animal, is that there, there, it seems to be very little, at least genetic um, consistency and coherence to the way that human beings have selected their, their pets throughout history. You know, people can keep a chinchilla or a, or a cat or a carnivorous fish as a pet. <laughs> it seems like the, the consistent criteria would simply be that a significant enough population of people has deemed this species of animal as a pet qualifies that for special protections rather than some measure of sentience, intelligence, cognitive ability, or even if we wanted to get a little corporatist material worth. That's definitely right. So 
um, again, you know, statutes vary, but there are there are some statutes that define pet as just an animal that's kept within X number of feet of the home. So that's pretty broad. But, you know, one of my favorite examples I like to talk about in, in my animal law class is pigs. Pot-bellied pigs or, or these sort of like mini pigs have become popular pets for some people. And, you know, you've seen the stories about someone adopts what they think is this mini pig and then it grows to be, a you know, a 700-pound like hog. But again, it, it's interesting to think about that because that's the exact same animal, right, that's living in someone's house and being treated as a pet versus being raised in a factory farm. Um, and thus, you know, you have to raise this question, well, why should different laws apply to the treatment of, of this identical animal just based on where it's being kept? And what I think we often wind up realizing is the protections that generally have been afforded to non-human animals are really more about that non-human animal's connection to a human as opposed to the inherent value of the being itself. And I think that's problematic. And that's something that a lot of the folks who are working in the, the animal rights area are trying to change, that it's not about how close uh, this non-human animal is to a person, to a human. It's about the, the being him or herself. It seems like for a lot of human history, particularly in relation to human property and slavery, the, the property status of married women and children, that um, a scientific understanding of DNA would have come in handy about 500 years earlier than it ended <laughs> up being discovered. And it seems that a lot of people commonsensically say that all members, all specimens of the species Homo sapiens have, have startlingly little genetic variation among them, and that it is the possession of that genetic material that makes one a member of the species Homo sapiens. And that is what qualifies you for human rights or distinction as a human being. Is that understanding true? Yes, I would say that, you know, that's certainly an argument that's made. And it's an argument that animal rights uh, advocates are now sort of trying to co-opt, especially in the case. So, so a lot of the cases that are being litigated now are about chimpanzees. And one of the reasons that those cases are sort of at the fore is because, you know, experts have said that humans and chimpanzees share I think it's almost 99% of their DNA, right? So chimpanzees are more closely related to human beings than they are to gorillas. And, you know, similarly, they share sort of brain structure and cognitive development. Um, and, uh, and again, as, we, as our science develops, we learn more and more about the, the brains and the experiences of, of non-human animals. And I think that's leading some people to suggest that the law should change. It, it raises really interesting questions because... You know, and this is getting into somewhat science fiction territory, but that's all becoming more realistic. So, you know, this idea of chimeras, right, where we're combining human genes with non-human animal genes. And, uh, you know, so I, you know, I always like to, to ask my students, you know, let's say we have some sort of governmental program where we're able to implant um, a human brain and, you know, 99% of uh, human DNA into what's otherwise the body of, of a gorilla or something. Um, and then we want to send these beings off to do, you know, mining or space travel or something, you know, then you get into these really interesting ethical gray areas. Is that a human? Is it a person? Is there really any grounds for drawing a distinction between, um, I don't know what we might call a genetically, a hundred percent genetically human and a 99.999% genetic human being. And so I, I think that that you're right. It's interesting to think about what was done before, but now that we have this information that and that it is part of our paradigm, I think we really have to think about um, as science evolves, as you know, people are getting transplants from pigs and things like this. What value is it? Um, there are serious efforts underway, um, and some scientists have estimated that within two or three years, they will be able to using reclaimed genetic material from. Um, woolly mammoths, uh, basically inject that genetic material into an elephant embryo and have uh, an elephant carry that mammoth embryo to term and therefore basically resurrect an extinct species. Yeah. Um, as science fiction-y as that is, it seems like it's potentially on our doorstep. And while I don't think that that's going to like, you know, invalidate um, a ton of legal questions immediately, one big one that I just had was... Um, in a hypothetical scenario where an extinct species is resurrected, would that individual 
that was uh, born and viable and alive, would that animal be immediately entered into the endangered species list? That's that's a pretty interesting question. For me, the bigger problems or questions that are raised by that relates to habitat, right? Because one of the main reasons that species go extinct is because of habitat destruction. And so my fear is that to the extent that becomes a reality and we think, oh, we don't have to worry we don't have to worry about extinction of animals because we can just create more in the lab that sort of ignores the bigger problem, which is that we're destroying the habitat for all of these species and they have nowhere to live, um, no range, nowhere to be. And uh, if we're just creating beings to keep them you know, in zoos and in labs and, and in cages, I don't know that we're really doing anyone uh, a service. Yeah, it's a little bit of a bleak and dystopian picture to paint. <laughs> I, I kind of wanted to give you an opportunity to plug yourself if you're on uh, if you're on Twitter and you want any of our listeners to follow you on Twitter or uh, have any special projects uh, that you want to bring awareness to. We'd love to give you the opportunity to speak about it. Sure, I, I'm like I am on Twitter. I don't know what my handle is. I don't <laughs> use it that much. I think it's S B Schindler. But yeah, no. The only other thing I I wanted to say that I think is important when, when talking about animal rights is, you know, whenever you mention animal rights, people, you get people coming out of the woodwork saying, oh, what? So animals are going to going to vote, you know, and I think it's just important to push back against that and, and, you know, make sure people understand that no one's seeking the right for animals to vote, right? When we talk about animal rights, we're really talking about recognition of animals as autonomous beings. So the right to not be held in captivity, the right to bodily integrity, uh, the right to liberty. And I think those are are pretty basic. And um, and again, once we start seeing uh, animals, uh, non-human animals, for the complex beings that they are, and and the intelligent beings that they are, I think it's uh, it's hard not to to see that they they should um, be given these kind of basic rights. Um, as for me, most of the work that I do really relates more to to property and land use. Um, so I'm working on some interesting problems uh, and projects about exclusion in cities and how we've historically used our built environment to to exclude people and um, thinking about ways that we can both just as as citizens and also uh, as legal decision makers um, try to create more thoughtful built environments that are more inclusive. Today we're also going to be interviewing Steve Wise, who's a legal scholar specializing in animal protection issues, primatology, and animal intelligence. He has taught uh, animal rights law at Harvard Law School, Vermont Law School, and Stanford University. He's a former president of the Animal Legal Defense Fund and founder and president of the Non-Human Rights Project. In 2016, he argued for the release of two chimpanzees before the New York Appellate Court, and the court is expected to issue its ruling in May 2017. Ladies and gentlemen, Steve Wise. Hello. So let's start um, by talking about the current case that you are arguing before um, the New York State Appellate Court. Can you talk a little bit about that case and where it currently stands? Three, three weeks ago, I argued in front of the, of the first department, which is an intermediate appellate court in, in New York State, and it's, it's, it's in Manhattan. And I argued on behalf of, of Tommy and Kiko, who are uh, two of the chimpanzee plaintiffs that we have been um, litigating on behalf of since December of 2013. And where we are now is... is uh, gets kind of of uh, procedurally confusing. Um, we had um, filed uh, three law- lawsuits on behalf of four chimpanzees. Uh, one of them was on behalf of Tommy and one on behalf of Kiko, and one on behalf of two chimpanzees for being used at Stony Brook um, named Hercules and Leo. And we had filed each of those suits in a different um, part of New York. When we uh, sought to appeal the, the, the refusal to issue a writ of habeas corpus on behalf of Hercules and Leo, the court dealt with this by saying we didn't have a right to appeal. So we decided that we would deal with that later. We then um, appealed on, on behalf of Tommy, and Tommy was said by the court uh, not to be able to be a person who has any kind of capacity for rights because of the fact that, that in order to be a person, and have a right, you have to be able to bear correlative duties. But that, that court allowed us to appeal, and we thought that this um, this idea, which was the first time that any court had ever said that, as far as we knew in the English-speaking world, you know, ever, that uh, it was highly unlikely that in order to be a person, you had to be able to have correlative duties, uh, especially since children, you know, infants, uh, people with advanced Alzheimer's, people who have comas, you know, or in comas, all of these kinds of human beings, you know, have 
lots and lots of rights, but they don't have any kind of correlative duties. Uh, so we we figured we we're going to have to return to that as well. And then in Kiko's case, in the fourth department, that court did not agree either with the second department in that it allowed us to appeal. It, it noted that a, a chimpanzee, uh, they, w- they would assume that a chimpanzee uh, without without deciding could be a person. And then they threw us out on the ground that in order to even file a writ of habeas corpus, you needed to be able to to go completely free and unconditional freedom. And you couldn't move from one place where you were not free to another place in, in which you were not free. Even though what we were trying to do with Kiko was move him from a place where he was in a cage to a place called uh, Save the Chimps in South Florida, where he would live on a, a five-acre island, you know, in, in an artificial lake with 25 other chimpanzees. So up we went to the um, intermediate uh, appellate court for Manhattan, the first department, and those were the appeals that I argued three weeks ago in, in um, mid, mid-March on both on behalf of both Tom and Kiko, uh, in which we, we argued that that the the court should not follow the Tommy case in that it made no sense whatsoever to say that you, you need to be able to be able to shoulder correlated duties in order to have a right and that no one, no court had ever said that before. And also that we had a, we had a perfect right to be able to, um, to file a second petition. Um, at that hearing, uh, the courts uh, didn't talk at all about uh, whether or not um, a, chimpanzee uh, could be a, a, a person it focused almost exclusively on the question of whether we could we could file a second petition and that surprised us because we we thought that the the habeas corpus statute is really clear about that so uh, we suspect we could lose on on that issue even though uh, we seem to be completely correct but we're kind of getting used to that and uh, we're get, getting used to um, especially appellate courts, um, not really wanting to get to the question which the rest of the world is looking at, which is, can a non-human animal like a chimpanzee ever be a person? Instead, we, we, we are continually met with um, courts who try to find some sort of a procedural reason for, for throwing us out rather than reaching the actual merits of the case. And based upon the oral argument, we suspect that's going to happen again. And in that case, we uh, simply... Uh, file more suits, and we keep going and try to uh, get the courts to um, address the issues. And that assumes that we we aren't able to appeal to the Court of Appeals of New York, which we will try to do. Um, and you never can tell that that court may take our case or, or not. And we can go right to the t- to, to the top court in New York. When do you expect the um, the order or the ruling to come out on Tommy and Kiko's case, which I believe is being deliberated currently, right? Yes, we expect it to come out uh, probably sometime in, in May. We have actually been sending a, a slew of motions to that court to bring bring um, things that have happened since we filed our brief and sometimes since oral argument to the attention of the court because things are happening that continue to support our arguments. One of them is that the... Um, New Zealand Parliament characterized a a river, the Wanganui River, in in New Zealand as 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 a person. Uh, two weeks after our oral argument, a uh, high court in one of the Indian states uh, stated that a that the Ganges River and another river, as well as the glaciers that that flow into the river, they were persons. So we wanted to bring this to the court to bolster our argument that you don't need to be a human being in order to be a person, and you don't need to be able to assume correlated duties or responsibilities as well. Uh, just for maximum clarity for our listeners, um, when when you say that a lake or a glacier can qualify for personhood, that's that's legal personhood in the way that in some jurisdictions, corporations have legal personhood um, versus, uh, I don't think you're arguing that a river is a sentient being or a legal entity that can experience suffering? Not at all. Uh, when we talk about uh, a non-human animal being a, a legal person, uh, <clears throat> what we're saying is right now they're a legal thing. You're either a thing or a person. A thing had, lacks the capacity for any kind of legal rights, while a person has the capacity for one or even an infinite number of legal rights. Um, It all depends upon a matter of public policy, whether that court believes uh, that, or the parliament believes uh, that the the entity ought to be able to be a legal person, ought to be able to have some sort of rights. It seems as a layperson that um, there's a staggering lack of nuance, that of all of the things that exist in the world, that the law 
um, touches or describes the the behavior or regulates that of all of the things that exist in the world that there's really a binary you're either a person or a thing and there's nothing in between there's nothing outside of that um, is is that a lack of specificity or nuance that's harming the the public relations battle or would you agree or disagree with that characterization I would not disagree at, at all with it uh, this is something that that came out of Roman law so we're, it's, it's more than two two thousand years old. But and and what the what the non-human rights project is, is is noting that this whole process is ongoing. It's not static, and now it's time for uh, at least some non-human animals to also um, move from being seen as things to being persons. And we don't really find that uh, it's it's hard for people to grasp it uh, once they they understand that that we're not talking about a person in 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 the way that that we might do it when when we speak to each other. That where it's actually a technical legal term. It just means hey. You have the capacity for rights. So when we, when we go into court, we um, want to make sure that the judges understand what, what we're talking about as well. What do the judges mean by correlative duties? Let me give you an example that um, say you and I have a contract. And so I'm going to buy your house for half a million dollars and you want to sell your house to me for half a million dollars. So we signed the contract. That, so I have a right then to your house. And you have a correlative duty to give me your house. There are so many ways of attacking what they what they said. Um, for one thing, um, there are many rights that are not these kinds of rights involving claims and duties. But there are, and and we we try to bring to the attention of, of the court. There there's some things, for example, that are called immunity rights, where that don't correlate to duties at all. There's it has nothing to do with duties. For example. Um, if, if when slavery was abolished, you know, uh, every human being could no longer be a slave, but nobody, nobody had to be able to bear duties and responsibilities in order not to be a slave. You were simply not a slave uh, anymore, and duties were irrelevant. And that's what we're similar, similarly have been asking for chimpanzees, not so much that they can't be a slave, but they cannot be enslaved. They, they cannot be made to, to spend their life in a cage. You know, it doesn't have anything to do with duties uh, whatsoever. I'd like to zoom in a little bit on this question of rights. It, it seems very clear to me that r- rights are not a binary thing and, and rights are not a singular thing. I think you make the point in your documentary. We're not advocating for Tommy and Kiko to have U.S. passports and be able to vote for the House of Representatives. We're just advocating for specific rights that pertain to their mode of existence. So I wanted to talk a little bit with you, if we could kind of flesh out a little bit more, and maybe you could kind of give us a little bit of a survey of specifically what rights you would argue for, and would you advocate for um, a subset of rights to be uh, attributed to all non-human persons, or would you group rights and attribute groupings of rights to different animals uh, based on genetic or evolutionary uh, requirements or necessities to their well-being? Right now, all non-human animals are legal things. So none of them have legal rights at all. Plus, there's a million species of, of animals. And so it's it's really hard, it's, it's impossible for us to generalize as to um, what rights you know animals should have? We have to talk about um, a specific animal or specific species of animals, and then talk about what rights might be appropriate for them. So we're really at the beginning of of, of what's going to be uh, an infinite process, just the same sort of process that that we're in now with respect to humans, and that there'll there'll always be um, struggles over what rights you know, human beings should have. And so we're we're beginning that right now with with uh, certain non-human animals. But the first thing that needs to be done is there needs to be a recognition by the judges and parliaments or legislatures that it is just for a a, a non-human animal, any non-human animal, to be a legal person. We understanding that a legal person is simply a container for rights. A, a, a person is a rights container. You can be a person who doesn't even have any rights. Uh, but you have the capacity for them. So once we begin to break through this wall that separates, you know, things from persons and move at least some non-human animals from being a thing to a person, at that point, we, we establish that, say, a ch- chimpanzees at least have the capacity for rights. Then we, 
we argue as to what rights would be appropriate for a chimpanzee. And the first one where we're, we're arguing is the fundamental right to bodily liberty that's protected by a writ of habeas corpus. So as anyone who's seen the film about us uh, may recall, um, in one of the um, courtrooms, I tell the judge, I, w- I want to remind you that our case is very limited. It has to do with whether or not these chimpanzees have the right to bodily liberty. That's the only right that we are seeking. and. We have no doubt that as we begin to win these cases, and and we will begin to win these cases, either with respect to chimpanzees or other great apes, or or, or one of the two species of elephants, or cetaceans like a, like a dolphin or a or a, an orca, that the d- debate both in in the world at large and in the in in the courts and in in the legislatures will intensify, and there'll be lots of other you know, organizations and people who will be jumping in trying to file these kinds of lawsuits and legislatures and referendum will probably come up where where people will begin to look at this much you know much more s- seriously and begin to debate well what sort of non-human animal ought to be a person uh, what sort of animal what what sort of rights should a non-human animal who is a person have like what kind of rights should an elephant have what what should an orca have what should a chimpanzee have and it's very difficult for us to be able to foresee um, very far at all into the future as to how these debates will go and how they'll finally uh, come out. Actually, they probably won't ever finally come out. It, it, it will always be an ongoing process. So what we're trying to do now is really make the first step, take the first step and and have courts recognize that a non-human animal like a chimpanzee can be a person and kind of ca- begin to catalyze the uh, judicial and legislative and public conversations about this so that um, those, so at least some non-human animals, let's say like a chimpanzee or an orca or an elephant, can be seen as persons who have certain kinds of rights. Now, all the different ways in which that can go, all the different roads that that can go down, you know, in each of the fifty states or, or the United States as a whole, or throughout Europe or, through, or throughout the world, is extremely complex. And we understand that it is extremely complex and that there'll be a wide variety of responses to the fact that we start winning. And uh, we just have to begin to to take it step by step. And so we do that as common law lawyers anyway. The, the common law tends to change step by step. So it's going to be a long and complex journey. And we're just trying to really to take the, the first steps. Do you have a personal or philosophical framework that you use in your own thinking that you could share with us about let's say uh, this is always a this is always a dangerous hypothetical but you're made emperor for a day and you're able to change the legal system to to fit your uh system of ethics and morals um what framework would you implement um for uh attributing specific rights to specific um individual species or groups of animals, and how would that system work? I would have a system that looks remarkably similar to the one that, that we have, except I wouldn't uh, follow through with this this kind of 2,000-year idea that all non-human animals are, 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 are things. I, I think that's, that's uh, the wrong place to go. I, I think it, it, it began at a time when, when people didn't, didn't even know that there was such a thing as science. The word science, you know, wouldn't exist for almost two 2,000 years on. And that we we now know so much about non-human animals, uh, and we're and we're learning more and more you know, every single week about how extraordinary how extraordinarily com- cognitively complex so many of them are. And I would um, make it clear that that uh, many of them ought to really automatically be legal persons, which means simply means that they have the capacity for rights, and then. Uh, kind of uh, get that squared away and then really spend our time not talking about whether they should be persons, but uh, acknowledging that they are persons and then beginning the the really important argument, both in courts and out of courts, uh, as to, well, what rights are appropriate for them? And really, that's the argument we should be having. And it's one of the hardest arguments that, that it's one of the things we're having the hardest time doing now is that Judges haven't had a real opportunity to, to, to think it through. They've never taken classes in uh, animal rights jurisprudence you know, um, because they did not exist when they were in law school. Uh, they, it's unlikely they've read books about it um, or heard lectures about it. We're hoping that 
that judges like everyone else, you know, we'll see our film, we'll, we'll read our books, we'll, we'll look at our pleadings and kind of begin to get used to the idea and really no longer treat them as, as, as our slaves. I have two specific uh, questions about rights that I'd like to posit and get your reaction on. Um, one that I've read about is um, being sensitive to or aware of as a framework, um, a specific species of animals, um, behavioral psychology, um, and taking that into consideration for what might cause them distress or suffering. Um, so one would be the right to socialize with other with peers in uh, one's same species. I think what's interesting is, that from what I understand, there are kind of ongoing legal cases for humans in which it's being debated whether an adult or even a child can be put into solitary confinement. And the argument is that that causes undue um, stress or psychological damage to be isolated from a social group. My question specifically is, um, that seems, from my understanding, if I call back to my anthropology classes in, in college, that seems to be um, uh, relevant to chimpanzees, bonobos, gorillas, um, but not necessarily, uh, not necessarily to orangutans, which are far more solitary in their social structures. Would you ever argue for a right to socialization that would apply to uh, gorillas and chimps, but not to orangutans? Yes. Uh, we don't have a one-size-fits-all argument. What, what we do is um, bring in the scientists who can tell us about the cognitive complexity of, of, of a certain species, and then we try to understand you know, what are the fundamental interests of that species, and then argue that they should have fundamental rights that protect their fundamental interests. And so those entities you know, who are highly social should have the right to be highly social because you and it could because as human beings we're highly social beings and we understand that that we punish each other for for committing horrendous crimes by putting them outside of society putting them in 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 prisons um where they're kept separate and and their their bodily integrity is you know highly circumscribed and then even within the prisons we might actually put them in solitary confinement which is really a terrible terrible you know sort of punishment um, now whether whether you agree that they should be there or they or they should not, and I think there are many powerful arguments why they they should not be there, but that's how we routinely treat non-human animals who haven't done anything wrong. A chimpanzee who lives by himself is just like a a human prisoner who's kept you know perpetually in solitary confinement. You know, it's a brutal, terrible thing to do, and there's no reason in the world that we should be able to do that to non-human animals, except for the fact that we're their masters and they're our slaves. And that is what the Non-Human Rights Project has, you know, directly in our sights. You know, that has to stop. Right. I have another scenario, and it's that a key evolutionary reality of all mammals, really, is the mother-infant pair bond and the instinct to nurse uh, an infant young individual of any species uh, that, that are mammals. Do you think that there is a potential framework whereby even though many, many mammals fall far lower on the cognitive spectrum than chimps, bonobos, gorillas, cetaceans, uh, even elephants, that they may qualify for the right to not be separated from their young. A specific example I would point to is um, that might be troublesome is pigs that are used in industrial agriculture. As far as we know, they are very sophisticated uh, in, uh, intelligences. They have very nuanced social orders. And they certainly demonstrate signs of suffering when they are separated from their young. You mentioned in the documentary that a great place to start from a political or PR standpoint is with great apes because they are not part of our Western industrial agriculture kind of food chain. And therefore, it would be less of an impact on a consumer to have chimpanzees granted rights. But pigs seem to be a very interesting and very problematic example. And so is mother-infant pair bonding an example of a right that could be ascribed to all members of the uh, mammalian world? And, um, and how would that impact mammals that are part of our, our industrial food system? Well, that um, it is a question that, that is probably some, somewhat down, down the road because we, we for many reasons, um, did not begin our, our, our litigation with, with those animals that we use for food. The last book that I, I, I wrote uh, called 
and American Trilogy was you know, looking at the uh, the factory farming of pigs and their slaughter in Tar Heel, North Carolina. And you know, I'm fully aware of that. And, and the whole thing is so awful and shocking and horrifying that it's uh, sometimes hard to even to imagine. When we argue that uh, the reason, say, a chimpanzee like Tommy or Kiko or Hercules and Leo ought to be legal persons uh, with the right to um, bodily liberty is because um, they're autonomous beings. We we bring in science, scientists who show that that they are they can live autonomous lives. They can remember their past. They understand they're living in the present. They understand they're, that they're, that they exist. That they, that they can plan plan a future. So we argue that autonomy um, is a sufficient condition for personhood. We never argue that it is a necessary condition. We simply say that entities like um, uh, ch- uh, chimpanzees or elephants or orcas and perhaps pigs. I, I, haven't, I, I haven't researched pig cognition uh, as much as we will one day. We, we argue that um, any being who is autonomous, who can who can live in a uh, a life that they can choose, you know, ought to be able to to do that. Are there other countries maybe that don't have our uh, political idiosyncrasies in which this litigation is? Uh, ga- gaining more traction? You know, the uh, human enslavement of non-human animals is universal. Just like human slavery was once virtually universal. You know, it takes a long time to to break through those kinds of, of cultural practices. Uh, but we are working, I think right now, with um, groups in 13 countries uh, to uh, lend whatever expertise we may have developed over the years in which we've been doing this, you know, to them. And indeed, the first breakthrough did occur in Argentina, uh, and that was in um, November, just four months ago, November of 2016, in which a chimpanzee named Cecilia uh, was the subject of, of of a lawsuit that was really based upon our work in in, in the United States and. Uh, Cecilia was a uh, chimpanzee who was imprisoned in a zoo in Mendoza, Argentina, and the judge stated that Cecilia, or found that Cecilia was a non-human person, uh, issued the writ of habeas corpus, and ordered Cecilia removed from the zoo and sent to a sanctuary in Brazil. So what we've been trying to do now for the last three plus years in New York has already now occurred once uh, in Mendoza, Argentina, and uh, it's hard to know when it, it will happen again. But uh, we're you know we're working not only with folks in our, in Argentina, but we're 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 working with folks you know in 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 Asia, in Australia, in in uh, Europe, in uh, South America, uh, to to uh, have this kind of litigation, or even going in front of parliaments to try to get statutes passed uh, that that would designate certain non-human animals as as persons in those countries. So it's really it's really a worldwide phenomenon that I'm 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 happy to say to a large extent has been catalyzed by the work of the non human rights project. And we're just you know really happy to see uh people take take these ideas or, or and, and run with them uh, as fast as they can. Those uh folks who want to be involved with the non non human rights project at any level, uh we are rapidly uh bringing staff in uh who's whose uh, primary purpose is really to do that, to work with people throughout the United States, throughout the world, who want to who want to either help the Non-Human Rights Project or begin to work in the area in which they're in. And uh, you can follow us and keep up, keep up with us. We're, we're on Twitter. Uh, we have, we're on Facebook. We have a um, really a, a really great website now. Or, and you can um, just hit, uh, take out your mobile phone and just hit uh, star uh, 52886, star 52886, and type in unlock for Unlocking the Cage, which is the name of our film, and uh, you'll be connected to us. My quick reaction is, in our kind of common sense but not legal expert discussion a few weeks ago, we threw out a bunch of questions. I asked if there was any uh, framework for our treatment of species. I asked if there was any other legal classification other than a person. Mm -hmm. And you asked... Um, you can't just shoot a dolphin. That's got to be illegal, is what you said. Mm-hmm. And my reaction to these two interviews that we've just done, I'm alarmed by how unresolved so much of this seems to be in the legal system. That's certainly true. But the tricky thing I found, even in our questions, is the that there's almost two different conversations happening, right? One is welfare and protection that's over here side a side b is 
kind of personhood and uh, individual rights. So while it is shocking that there is no framework whatsoever for personhood, I mean, like zero framework for personhood and individual rights for non-human animals, there is, I mean, you know, uh, Professor Schindler told us that there is a framework for protection and right and welfare. Right. The, she talked about the Animal Welfare Act of 1966. Right. And also the, like pet the pets dogs. and then endangered species. So I want to, let's deep dive on that a little bit. Something that makes me really uncomfortable is the fact that a lot of these laws, um, a lot of our understanding of personhood or non-personhood, Mr. Wise, uh, Stephen Wise just said that a lot of the origins of this is in Roman law, mm-hmm. which it would be an interesting follow-up or deep yeah, dive no for idea. you. Um, for both of us, but, um, particularly for you and how abolition, all of the legal arguments about abolition of slavery occurred in the 19th century. Well, there was a bunch leading up to the 19th century, but it seemed to be resolved in the 19th century. All of these things occurred before we had an empirical understanding of the differences between species and individuals. So we did not know about DNA. We did not know about um, genomics, uh, natural selection was, um, maybe just coming onto the scene, uh, during the civil war and right after, mm-hmm. right? So all the whole evolutionary debate was occurring after slavery. What makes me uncomfortable is that even the animal welfare act of 1966 was 14, 12 or 14 years after Watson and Crick discovered DNA. Mm-hmm. And I would be astounded if any of the uh, members of, of the United States Congress in 1966 were legally proficient in the uh, science of uh, DNA and genetics. So what makes me super uncomfortable is that there, there are laws, but they're like band-aid laws. And there's really no cohesive framework, it seems. For but example, isn't this, aren't you describing the the dilemma of lawmaking in general yeah, absolutely it just I mean, that, I, yeah we're always behind absolutely and it makes me it makes me super uncomfortable something else i want to talk about this woolly mammoth issue oh right so for our listeners there are several projects at universities and research labs around the world to resurrect extinct species it's otherwise known as de-extinction yeah you're making it sound very complicated they're trying to jurassic park woolly mammoths yeah yeah exactly <laughs> Yeah. So my question is, uh, my question I asked Professor Schindler is um, the moment that woolly mammoth was born, would it be immediately entered into the endangered species list? It's kind of a deliberately, I mean, it's a serious question, but it's deliberately kind of funny or flippant. Right. But I think it exposes some areas of the modern world and technology and biomedical research that we're just unprepared for. But well, that's true. I mean, I was going to ask, like, what's the what's the point of the question? But I don't mean to disregard what what you're asking. But like, I think that you just hit it right there, which is that like, it this would be so disruptive if if scientists are able to do this, it would be so disruptive to the legal framework for protecting animals, right? It just, so what? So if you were emperor for a day, what would you like? How would you address the Jurassic Park woolly mammoth? That's a good question. I don't have a clear answer because, on the one hand, I think it very clearly would be it would be the only existing specimen of its entire species. I think that would automatically qualify it under the Endangered Species Act. However, God, isn't that though inherently cruel? Yeah, like to just make one. Absolutely. Well, what are they going to do? Here's another area this gets very weird. And this is something that's been discussed. I do not think it's as far along as the mammoth issue, which to be clear to our listeners, I'm not just being a goofball science fiction guy right now. This like there are there are mainstream scientists. Um, I'll put a link in the show notes that are, that say that we're like two years away from resurrecting the woolly mammoth. Like this is something that's underway right now and will happen probably before the next presidential election. There will be a woolly mammoth born somewhere in the world. Where it gets extra weird. Something that... That's already pretty weird. Well, (laughs) let's get extra weird. Something that we... I think it's convenient that we forget about our anthropology, our history, and our fossil record is that we have this 
homo sapiens chauvinism about the world. And it's easy because there's a lot of space even between us and our nearest genetically related uh, animal siblings like chimpanzees. When in fact, up until very recently, there were many different species of the genus homo Mm -hmm. that existed in the same environment, in the same area. And by many estimations, the reason they no longer exist, mm-hmm. the reason we are no longer walking around in a, in a walking around a world of intelligent aliens is that we killed all of them. We got into wars with the Neanderthals. We killed Homo floresiensis. We basically eradicated Denisovian man and all of these other species of the genus Homo mm-hmm. that had cultures and art and social groups and even looked very similar to us, but were genetically uh, distinct and were speciated separate from us. And so my question is, what happens when we resurrect the Neanderthal? When we Jurassic Park an Encino man. Yes, <laughs> that's exactly what I'm saying. <laughs> what happens then, right? Because does, does, does a self-aware, two-legged, walking on two feet, virtually hairless, intelligent, art-making, clothes-making, non-human... Does that get entered into the endangered species list? I think that going back to that, what did you call it? Homo sapiens chauvinism or human? Yeah. Whatever. I think that those people immediately shoot to the top. I mean, if we're listing them as kind of along with animals or non-human animals, they immediately shoot to the top of the list in terms of protection because they look and feel so much like us. But is that a bad rubric? Is that a very sloppy rubric to say, you look like me, therefore I'm going to give you rights? But I think that that, the extension of rights reflects an innate animal truth, which is that you have um, an instinct to defend the other members of your species from a foreign threat. Foreign meaning outside of your species. Right? Do you have that right? I think that's like a gut. Well, but the right is uh, we are intelligent beings, and so we have created this idea of rights to... We've created this idea of rights as an extension of the, what, what you observe in nature, is what I'm saying. I, I would push back on that, because okay. I would remind you that while the debate over human rights has been going on for centuries, that the legal concept of human rights is really a post-World War II United Nations construct, and it's based a lot on preventing really, really bad things from happening to people, right? You can't uh, do medical experiments mm-hmm. on humans. You can't gas humans. You can't, you, you have to feed prisoners of war food. Um, but I don't think that's looking to nature or to the animal kingdom for how to operate. I actually, I, I don't think it's looking to nature. I think that a lot of those rights that you're talking about are a reflection of, tech, are, an, are a response to technology. And the, I mean, if you look at, if you go back to the idea of natural rights, right, which come about in like the late 1600s and early 1700s, the, those rights weren't just created when John Locke thought of them. They, the rights had been there all along, whether or not you know kings and queens had extended them, had, had offered them to their subjects or not, you know, depends on where and when you're talking about, but the rights had been there. Does that make sense? It does make sense. I just think that we would all be shocked if we were to take a hard look at how even those rights, which are like bouncing around coffee shops in Amsterdam in the 1600s, mm-hmm. were not applied to most right, yeah. individuals mm-hmm. on the earth until recently. And there are a lot of arguments that there are a lot of people currently existing on the face of the planet earth that don't have. Yeah. It's but, important to note that if you and I were around at the, if, if, West L.A., Nick Daze, and Hollywood, Eddie Quintana could somehow be around at the founding of this country. Neither one of us has the right to vote. Right. Because we don't own property. Right. So that is like a relatively, the extension of that right to people like us is, is you know, came later. It came in like the right. early 1800s. So I'm, I feel like I'm kind of getting lost in my own thinking here. But I think that 
Encino Man comes back in 2018, and he is he or she, he and she are immediately given all of the protections possible. Not necessarily full voting rights or things like that, but I think that, yeah, they're giving full protection. What's interesting, though, is that whether it's a Neanderthal or a mammoth, they're not naturally occurring specimens, right? Mm-hmm. They, are, they are the inventions of a laboratory. Mm-hmm. In some warped and dystopian world, one could argue probably successfully that they are and their genetic code are the intellectual property of the laboratory that made them. Right. And it just it gets really weird. It gets really weird really fast. Well, these two chimpanzees that are at Stony Brook then might be that that might be setting the legal framework. It, if I were an omnipotent being, I would have the judges rule in favor of Mr. Wise, if only to force the conversation, mm-hmm. also to force the conversation to extend beyond chimpanzees and say, how do we treat cetaceans? How do we treat factory farmed animals? How do we treat artificial intelligence? How do we treat ourselves? How do we treat de-extincted members of the genus Homo or of completely different species? How do we deal with the intellectual property nuances of genetic code in the age of CRISPR and the ability to edit um, Mm -hmm. the genome? Is a specific sequence of DNA nucleotides, is a specific sequence of nucleotides that occurs naturally in your body, your intellectual property? Is it an act of nature? If I go in and I write some completely unprecedented series of nucleotides that gives you uh, green skin? Does that mean I own the intellectual property to that sequence of nucleotides the way that if I wrote a rhyming couplet in a sonnet, I would own the intellectual property or the copyright on that poetic couplet? So here we ventured out of Jurassic Park and Encino Man toward Gattaca, just for those keeping track at home of of what what movies, of what specifically (laughs) 90s movies. If there's one thing I know, it's that we stopped asking the big questions (laughs) around 1999, 2000, uh, at least in our mainstream uh, film and film and television. Yeah, I was I don't agree with that, but I was going (laughs) to say that one of I have a few things to say. One thing is that the, you know, the pace of progress is slow on one hand, but on the other hand, you think about the argument for personhood for black people in this country. In 1857, the Supreme Court ruled that a black person, that a freed slave, or that a slave had no right to bring a lawsuit in court, right? And eight years later, or nine years later, they had full rights under the 14th Amendment. So that's in one decade, that's this tremendous change in their uh, legal status. Legal status, yeah, under under the law. And so I I too hope that Stephen Wise's cases are successful and that they are granted um, personhood, that these two chimpanzees are granted personhood. But even if they're not, that doesn't mean that it's like, oh, you know, the, the cause is lost. Like, we, things could still happen and public opinion could still kind of catch up to what he's trying to accomplish. Yeah. And I, just to restate something I said a minute ago in hopefully a simpler way, I'm excited about the interviews we've just done. I think this work is, um, I think this work is deceptively connected to a lot of different issues Mm -hmm. that we already face in our society and that are only going to become more acute in the coming decades. I think we're going to have to talk about this again and and re- and focus more on artificial intelligence because I think that uh for a lot of people like they can understand like absolutely these chimpanzees that can, you know, that they know sign language and they're able to put together these complex uh ideas, right? And there's one oh the chimpanzee in the movie who like they just flash a number sequence for like half a second and then the chimpanzee knows. That was staggering to me because yeah. we all remarked you and I watched it with along with our wives and we all remarked that none of us could do that. Yeah. Um, I think that a lot of people can see that and, and say like, Oh yes, these chimpanzees obviously deserve special, not special rights, but uh, personhood recognition. But I think it's more difficult for a lot of people to look at the phone in their pocket and, and say like, wait, no Siri definitely doesn't need rights. And I agree with that. Siri doesn't, but the, trajectory of 
artificial intelligence is so steep that Siri is going to go from not needing rights to needing full rights like immediately. Yeah. And I and I think that a lot of people don't understand how quickly it's going to be coming. Right. It's that linear versus exponential thinking. Yeah. It's just a wild world. It wraps my head. In <laughs> I feel like we're losing energy, though, but it is exciting. Like, it's exciting. Yeah. Sure. It's daunting. It's so daunting. But I guess anything worthwhile is big and daunting. Thank you for listening to Robot F. Kennedy. If you have any questions or comments for us, you can find us on Twitter at Robot F. Kennedy. If you like our podcast, rate us on iTunes. If you know someone who'd be interested in the rights of non-human animals or any of our previous episodes, please pass our podcast along to them. Thanks for listening.